Welcome to the Gay Pride Podcast with your host, Gabriel Webster. And today's guest, it's me. <laughs> Nice. Welcome to the Gabe Pride Podcast. As always, this is Gabe, um, and thank you for tuning in. Thank you to the Matt Petersons of the world. It's only one that I know. Thank you to Matt Battaglia for the intro music, and thank you to Austin Barnes for all the things, video work that I do. Um, today is going to be a little bit of a different episode, one that I did one, and it was an hour long, and some people really liked it. My parents really liked it, which was cool, you know, to always have the approval of your parents or to at least sometimes. And, and this was one of those sometimes that I had the approval of my parents on an episode that I did. I talked about my brother um, and the day that he passed away. Today is like it was the month of September, for those that don't know, is like the National Suicide Awareness Month. Um, and as someone that has openly talked about mental health, someone that's openly talked about suicide, depression, anxiety, and continues to through a group called Michael's Giving Hand, um, I decided I'm going to tell my story on today's episode. Um, It's a story that definitely is emotional. I'm pretty emotional today, just kind of with the events that have transpired in the the past couple of weeks, you know. Um, Pretty emotional, but also like super good and I guess blessed, which is a weird word. And I try not to get too religiously, religiously motivated anymore, really. Um, not for any given reason other than just focusing on authenticity as best as I can. But I do think that I am blessed. Well, I know it, you know, but, um, I'm I'm not supposed to be here, um, in probably more ways than one. Who knows, um, I mean, the odds of being born and all that stuff, but, but, um, yeah, suicide didn't enter my family's life when my brother passed away, I'll say that, and get into the story in a moment or two, um, but yeah, as always, when I talk about heavy subjects, not necessarily a trigger warning, but I'm going to be talking about a lot of things, I'm going to talk about, um, obviously, suicide, depression, anxiety, I'm going to be talking about um, assault a little bit too. So if anything like that kind of triggers you is something that you don't feel comfortable listening to, please do not continue to listen. But for those that do, this is my story. Um, and it's unique to me. Um, but also, it's not totally a unique story. Because I know, obviously, that everyone struggles and that everyone's going through hard times. I think it's weird. And, and maybe just because I'm around people again and performing and doing Spongebob, I get to see more people than I have in almost two years. And maybe it's just that, like getting back to normal, you know, or quote unquote normal. But I do think that mental health is going to take a toll on everybody in every place, like whether it's workspace or like hobby place, like it is doing community theater. Um, but it's, it is definitely going to be 
it's going to need to be an emphasis for people to to be able to do the things that they once did. I mean, for me personally, like this show is taking the living hell out of me, um, and I'm having the most amazing time doing it. I love what I'm doing, and I love this show, and I love each and every person that is a part of it. But I come home and I'm exhausted, which is a good thing to be tired. You know, it means you gave everything you had, but but it is exhausting. And I think back to the days where I like work from three o'clock in the morning to to noon and then go to school from two to six and then go to rehearsal from seven to 10 or seven to 11, whatever it is, and then get home at like midnight and then do the same thing over and over and over again. And, um, I don't, I know I can't do that right. I couldn't do that right now. Uh, and maybe that's because my mental health is all over the place, (laughs) which is an exciting truth to reveal. And I guess I'll reveal that as I continue on with telling you all about me and my how I guess my mental health journey began. Um, and <laughs> I think the crazy thing about journeys is sometimes, and I said this to somebody last night, is that there are moments in life when it's almost like you're watching a movie of your life, like you're watching yourself go through the process, but it doesn't feel like you're the one living it. And throughout my life, I felt that many times, but each journey I think is like that when you look at a big picture, but it's kind of hard to see and make the right changes for big picture when you're in the present of the small picture. If that all that picturing makes sense, hope it does. But yeah. Um so I don't have the best way to begin this story. And as I said, I'm already emotional and I have no control uh, um over how I get during this podcast, so bear with me. Um, tears might come and that'll be good, but maybe we'll just edit it out and do something different. I don't know. So it started when I went to fourth grade, um, the bullying, I mean, and it didn't ever really go away. I don't know if I learned to deal with it better or I just learned to kind of say like, screw the haters or whatever. But I remember it distinctively in fourth grade. Um, and it was because I was the new kid. I was the new kid and I, and I was different. I was always bigger than everybody else, um, both size and weight. Um, so there was kind of like jokes definitely made about like my size physically, but I was also intimidating to people. And I think that often makes you a target too, is if you're someone that is larger than life, it makes you like the biggest target to take down. And I had never really faced that before coming from a super, um, super sheltered Christian environment, um, coming from being homeschooled, that wasn't something that I knew too well, was that bullying. Um, and it was a lot of it was things that I didn't really have control over, you know, or I didn't, um, or, and many things that weren't true, which in hindsight, I've learned if someone's saying something that isn't true about you, or calling you a name, well, if you're not that name, it shouldn't really affect you. And maybe that's not the best way of going about it or the most empathetic way to, to deal with people calling you names, I guess, but it it's what's worked for me. So anyway, in fourth grade, it was a lot of things about being adopted, being told that I was a mistake, um, which sucks, <laughs> obviously. And, it, and I knew it wasn't true, um, and I knew that I was loved by my parents immensely, and I love... And, and I mean, obviously, they're sending me to a pretty good, a pretty great um, private school, 
and they loved me and took me to do things and and like more than just like the the parent parental stuff like they loved me and they told me they loved me and they told me they're proud of me so i so i knew that i wasn't a mistake um but it was all different kinds of people throwing that word at me and eventually it started to seep into my head and seep into my thoughts and then seep into my life and what i thought about my life the best way i explain it when i'm talking at schools is it's almost if you're told over and over and over again that the sky is green and the grass is blue, you eventually believe it, no matter how much you used to know that the grass is green and the sky is blue. Um, and I hope I said that right. I'll have to go back and check. Um, but yeah, so mistake. Constant mistake being told that. The other thing, um, I was called, like, gay, um, and other words that I'm not going to use, uh, surrounding that thing, that sexual orientation, I guess, um, about my love for performing and my love for theater. Like I said, that, I, that started when I was four years old. So way before fourth grade and it was what I loved and it was what I was, was passionate about and am passionate about. But, but then it was like all systems go, like I was ready and wanted to be like the next Broadway superstar or whatever and constantly put down and made fun of and belittled because of that so now you're attacking the two intrinsic things of young Gabe's mind his love um the love of his life which is still I think the love of my life performing and then the love of himself myself in being called a mistake and um, like I said, I started to believe it. I started to feel passionately that I wasn't worth it, that it didn't matter, um, that I didn't matter, that I would never achieve my goals. So why start trying at them anyway, that I wasn't meant to be where I'm at and I'm not meant to be at all. All these super sad, scary, negative, demeaning things about myself, things that if I'm honest, still like to flicker up in my mind um, at different times. And I think that's the thing that's hard about uh, being having a diagnosed mental um, disordering. I don't know if I'm disordered. I probably am in many ways. But uh, mentally, I I don't like saying the word disordered. It's just different, I guess. To have depression and anxiety and maybe even other things, which I don't necessarily know how to talk about yet. And those that know will know. Um, but yeah, I I felt all these things passionately. I remember coming home. I can't remember. It was a while ago, obviously. Um, I can't remember if I was in therapy and seeing doctors before this. But I remember about that time. Um, going to this doctor and we would bounce a ball across the room and he'd ask me questions and I'd kind of hide my answers cause I didn't want him to judge me. And it was a lot of stuff about like depression. Um, like if I ever thought that I didn't matter, which I thought, but I didn't say, um, if I ever thought that I didn't, that I wasn't going to be able to be or do anything, which I definitely thought. And one of the things, and that's one of the big ones that creeps into my mind still, um, but I didn't say anything. I felt 
I felt alone, really. Um, I felt unique. It felt unique in a negative way, which is that aloneness, right? Um, that no one could understand my problems because no one was walking the same road as me. And I didn't take the time to think that maybe someone doesn't have to walk on the same road of you to see you on that road and to relate it to their own. So, I remember the day um, <laughs> pretty vividly. Um, I just decided that this was it. That I was going to um, depart from this world and and make the people that bullied me, make the people that hurt me, um, I guess prove them right, you know. And um, I did what I did. I attempted to take my own life. And my mom was home. And she helped me, obviously. She came and found me with with a belt around my neck. And, um, she obviously helped me get it off and, and was very upset and said that I needed to get help and that I was going to, and that it was not a, not, not non-negotiable, non-negotiable matter. And I remember being afraid, afraid to be caught. Um, obviously I felt a little in trouble in that way, but afraid, afraid that these feelings were now real because I had acted on them. Until thoughts are just thoughts until they become actions, you know. I I hear that a lot in the world, and and I've and I've known that to be true, in just in just my own life, obviously. But but that was the first time where my thoughts affected my reality in a pretty negative way, and I was terrified, terrified of what was to come, terrified of what had just happened, um, and still just. Uh, walking the unknown path of wondering and wandering where I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to do, and who I was supposed to be too. I was a fourth grader, which is nuts to me to think about now. The fourth graders would have to think about that. And maybe it's I'm too ahead of my time, and maybe it was I was I was too much then, I don't know. But yeah, I remember um, the next step, which is hard to talk about too. Maybe even a little harder for me. I don't know. It was when I was taken to the hospital after um, the events of that day. And it was super hard and super scary. But before I get to that, I want to talk about the sponsor of today's podcast, GFG. It's a great restaurant um, led by great people with great food, great drinks, and for the great all being you, who should all all well be there, um, I I can't talk I can't say enough positive things about this place. They they do great things for me and great things for this podcast, and we want to just shout them out and tell you to check them out the next time you're in Kennett Square. Check them out on Instagram at gfg.ks, like gfg the letters dot Kennett Square. That's how you'll remember. It's a great place. Check out. They got coffees, juices, all different kinds of food for every different kind of occasion. They also do catering. So if you're if you're having like a back to school party or a back to school night and you want to kind of get things uh, popping, check out GFG and they'll hook you up. Right. All right. So back to the hard stuff. <laughs> I just want to take a minute and make sure I talk about them. Um, but yeah, so back to back to the depressingness, I guess. So, after the day, 
where I attempted to take my life. My mom was on the phone 24-7 trying to get me help, obviously. And I remember one day she was like, get in the car, we're going to see a doctor. And obviously I, I went and it was all these winding back roads. It was terrifying and I used to get car sick a ton. Like I, w- I would throw up and I remember one time going to my aunt, we were driving to my aunt Marianne's house and, and as we were driving and we were so close, she lived in Virginia, um, at the time. I think she still does. I don't know, but yeah, she, my godmother should know where they live. You know, I think they do live in Virginia, just a different part. But anyway, as I digress into a story, I was already digressing in. I, um, I threw up and I remember being super young and my mom had to hose me off and like, it was super, it was super rough. Might've been around that time, maybe younger, like second grade, I think. And that was when like car sickness started. But I remember on this drive to be, to go meet this doctor, I was super car sick. And I still remember it was Cromwell, Cromwell Bridge Road, terrifying. And it came back to bite me later. But I remember going and sitting outside and my mom has, my mom still has this, these big binders for each one of us kids. And they talk about kind of like the different, the different things and all the paperwork of different doctors and different medicines and our adoption stuff. And I remember sitting in the lobby and, and she said she was going to read me the letters she used to write to my birth mom, um, and that she would send to them and she would always keep copies of them and they'd be like, oh, well, Gabe does this now and, and stuff like that, just connecting with them. And I remember she promised me that. And as, as she was starting to read, the doors opened and we met with the doctor. Um, and I remember his office, I can, I can still see it now as, I mean, it was kind of classic office. It was brown and they had this big brown maroon chair in the center and big old desk and all his degrees set up as I guess doctors do. And he told me that I was depressed, (laughs) which I knew. I didn't really know what that meant in fourth grade, but I knew that I, I didn't feel right. I didn't feel good. I wasn't happy. I wasn't finding the same joy in the things that I used to. He told me I also had anxiety. Um, and, and yeah, and so that's like, I don't know, it's almost like if you lived your entire life blind, and then one day you were made to see, in obviously a very different way. I was living my life one way, and then it was almost like I was told this to turn the other way, and it made everything clear. Not necessarily in a positive way, and not necessarily as giving me an excuse for my actions, but... It made it all like it made the puzzle pieces align when he was starting to tell me the different like symptoms of depression. And obviously I had attempted to take my own life. So I had major depressive, major, major, major depression. Um, and my anxiety was towards all different things. And it's kind of developed over time in weird ways, too. Uh, I used to be terrified to go to the bank. That was like my one big anxiety. And I thought they were judging me. Because now, because I didn't have any money and that they would like be laughing at me behind the counter or I'd see somebody that I knew and, and then they would know that I didn't have any money or just like the, the, the pile up continued to up and up and up as time went on. 
Um, and then I just realized, like, well, I don't have any money. Uh, and uh, that's true. So if they want to laugh, let them laugh. But it took a long time to get to that point for sure where, not that I didn't care, but I didn't see the same the same weight that was about what they thought and what I thought. Anyway, he diagnosed me at the time with major depression and major anxiety. And he said that I should be I should be put into their inpatient facility. Inpatient versus outpatient facility. Um inpatient facility you go in and it's kinda like staying at the hospital. You go and you live there. Where outpatient is you come and you go. And obviously at this at this point I had no clue what was going on. I I just knew I was going to the doctor that day, so I didn't really put any kind of effort into the situation. I was just like, okay, well, uh, whenever that starts, I'll be here, you know. Um, and I remember he asked to talk to my mom for a little while. And I was super scared again. Because I didn't really know what was going on. And I remember going back to this waiting room. And, and I played FIFA in there for the first time. And I didn't really know the controls. But it was cool to see the guys running around. And it took my mind away from the madness that was both in my mind and in my world at that time. My mom came to get me, and she let me sit there for a little while with her, and she read me some more of the notes from my biological mother, and and I cried, and and she cried just to maybe maybe it's seeing what I had become and seeing that like this baby grew up to be this depressed little boy. <laughs> who grew up to be a depressed uh, man-child, who will probably grow to be a depressed man. <laughs> Hopefully not, but maybe, you know. But yeah. And then she left. <laughs> and when she left, I didn't know what to do. Obviously, it's your mom leaving. So my mom left for the first time. <laughs> I was terrified. I was so scared. Um... I didn't know, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. My mom had just left. And they told me I was going to stay there right away. And <laughs> as tears well up in my eyes right now, it was a super traumatic thing, obviously. Like your mom just walks out the door and you don't know where, you don't know what she's doing. You don't know where you're going, you know? Um... P.S. She left me there, and oh my gosh, it was so scary. It was terrifying that place. <laughs> don't definitely don't recommend to a friend to be institutionalized or whatever. Um, I remember them coming back with a bag for me. It didn't have much in it. It couldn't have much, you know, being in a place like that. Oh, it was like prison, but worse. Because everyone was crazy. <laughs> Even in prison, some people are innocent. <laughs> but there, everyone was guilty of a crime that... They were almost guilty of a crime they didn't commit. That was just kind of forced on them, placed upon them, you know? <sighs> I remember the first night. Oh, God. <laughs> this podcast is probably going to suck for the rest of the time at least because I'm 
I'm emotional and I don't have the story doesn't get any better. It takes a while to get better, <laughs> at least. But I remember the first night, and sometimes I have nightmares that I'm still there. <laughs> I just remember the sound. Everyone, the whole night, was crying and screaming and banging on the walls. And I was terrified because I didn't think... I didn't think I was supposed to be there, you know. I was I was bullied to the point of doing what I did, and it didn't seem right. It didn't seem right that I was I, I was like those people, you know. It, it it was hard to put myself with them, and because I, I I didn't feel like I was. So that was the first night I remember. I, I remember crying myself to sleep, and. I had a picture of my family underneath my pillow, and I just held on to it all night because I wanted to wake up and be home. I remember, I remember that that night, the first night, I had a dream that I was home, <laughs> and I woke up and I was terrified because I didn't know where I was again. <clears throat> Sorry, <laughs> I'm going to get back into it guys, I promise, um, just wanted to take a minute, I was getting pretty emotional and I wanted to wanted to calm down so I could finish the story, um, I remember where I was and everything, but I just feel like the story I need to tell today, I don't necessarily know why, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good, I don't know if it's a good story to put out into the world, you know, but, but today's the day to do it if any being National Suicide Prevention Day, that if this podcast reaches somebody, and even if it's not for years, you know, someone just stumbles upon this later in life and they and they they relate to it, it'll make all the difference for me and it'll mean that these tears that just poured from my eyes for the past like 10 minutes, that I had to stop, um, that they were worth it, you know. But getting back into it, I remember that first night I dreamt that I was home, and when I woke up I wasn't, and I cried some more. The place that I was in was terrifying because it was almost it almost was more like prison than any than getting any help. I remember the doctors would watch us but not talk to us. It was almost like being lab rats in that way. We would sit in front of TVs all day. All we would do is watch TV, watch movies, and sit there, and we could draw if we wanted to. We could. We could cry if we wanted to. We couldn't go to our room because all I knew all I wanted to do was sleep and try and dream this place away, but but I couldn't. Um, we could have visitors every once in a while. My parents came as often as they could. And I remember being I remember being excited for them to come but scared to see them see the rest of the kids have them around because I knew that I remember that not many kids had their parents come, which is also, you know, very sad. There was a hierarchy to my time in there. It was almost like I was the new kid for a while. And the only way I can relate it is like that movie Holes, where he comes in and they all kind of like look at him until he like proves his place. But I never really proved my place and I don't think it would have been good if I did. Um, being uh, Being an alpha male in that pack of dogs would be like... A Rottweiler and a pack of Chihuahuas. 
like you just it's just not it's just built different in a way that wouldn't be good you know i and the, but there was a rottweiler and i still remember and i'm gonna i'm gonna shout him out because there's probably thousands of people just like his name was kai and he was huge larger than life I mean, I was in fourth grade, so I was super young, and I was tall for my age, but this kid had to have been every good bit of 6'2", and was like 14, 15 years old. And everyone was terrified of this kid. I remember in like group therapy sessions, the kids would go around and kind of talk about what got them to be where they were, and most of the time I just listened. But I remember one kid, I can still kind of picture him, he was a short uh, Hispanic kid, he had jumped out of his mom's car because he was upset. And the car was moving like 30 miles an hour or something like that. And he just jumped out because he didn't get Burger King. And I remember that being the legitimate reason why he said it. And he said it so nonchalantly that I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess that might be a reason. You didn't get a Whopper, so you whopped onto the ground or whatever. I don't know. That was stupid. But... But I remember that, and I remember Kai saying he beat the hell out of someone and being terrified again. One night, my parents were able to come for dinner. But we couldn't leave, but it was Friday night. And every Friday night at home, we'd either watch a, we'd watch a movie and have pizza. It was like movie night, you know? And it was super fun, and we'd always go to Blockbuster, RIP Blockbuster, but we'd always get... We'd go to Blockbuster, go to one of the local pizza places, or and just get pizza and do that as a family. So they decided to bring that to me, the pizza that is. And we had pizza in the cafeteria at the hospital. And it was nice. It was a good time. Um, I remember Kai and his family were also scheduled to have like a visitation at that time. And Kai sat across the way from me, um, across the table, I guess. It was a table that was across the room. Trying to get it in my mind's eye. It was at least like, at least 10 years ago. At least 10, obviously, but maybe even 15. Anyway, Kai was sitting at the other end of the opposite table across from me. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Anyway, he was sitting there and my mom saw him get up. My mom saw him get up, walk over, take a a thing of scissors from the cashier's um, checkout. And walk away, walk up to it and walk up to his room with him. And my mom immediately was like, oh my gosh, that guy just stole scissors. That kid just took scissors. Like, what's going to happen? Like, someone needs to say something. Someone needs to do something. And I remember the fear that came over me because I knew for a fact that if my mom had told on Kai, Kai would find out some way, somehow, who had told on him and it would come back to me and I was going to get my ass beat. Um... But my mom did what she thought was right. And probably it was the right thing to do. If someone has scissors, especially someone that is known to have hurt people and known to be physically at that time in a mental institution, it's probably good that they don't have scissors. Um, So she did what she did. The next day, once again, never forget, but try not to get emotional, (laughs) too emotional this time talking about it. I remember Kai came up to me and he was like, I know it was you. I know you're the one. I know your mom did that. I know your mom told on me. And now I'm in big trouble. So therefore you are too. And I remember he kept saying to me that to me all day while we were watching TV. Back and forth. But no real forth because I didn't know what to say. This guy was huge. And I was little. Um, 
and all day, all day, until finally, I think, like, a teacher went to go get a break or go to the bathroom or something, and not a teacher, but, like, therapist, watcher, overs, people, and he lunged at me the moment they walked out the door. He lunged at me, had his hands around my neck, and threw me into the corner where cameras couldn't pick up where I was. He choked me and wouldn't let go. I remember my breath going away. I remember being afraid uh, that I was going to die. I was going to choke to death or get strangled two times the same week and not knowing and being terrified about it. As clear as I remember that memory, I remember what happened next. Not exactly next, because I don't know how his hands came off of me. I don't know if someone barged into the room, saw what was happening, and threw him off of me. I don't know if maybe he decided to repent and took his hands off and to do bad no more, you know. Um, But what I do remember was the dream I had. And I don't know if it was a dream or some altered state of reality that I was in. But I remember being on a stage, a huge open space. Everyone was laughing and cheering and clapping for me. And that was the moment that doubled down that I had to be an entertainer. That that's where I feel fulfilled. That that is what my life's calling is supposed to be. Some people know that story. Some people don't know that part of the story. But that is why I I feel so passionately that I'm meant to perform. That I'm meant to be an entertainer of some capacity. That I'm meant to do what I'm doing. So, I got out of the mental institution, um, which will remain nameless for its benefit, and I had to go to outpatient for a couple weeks, which, kind of like I explained, you come and go, but you can go home. Every night, I remember crying myself to sleep when I was in the hospital, and just being so, so excited to get back to my bed the day that I got back that I jumped in it, and I don't think I ever wanted to leave. I remember being in the hospital for Halloween and we didn't really tick trick or treat, but they like let us like dress up in costumes that weren't really costumes because we couldn't wear anything, but we could like pretend that we were something and trick or treat along the doors of the other kids that were in the hallway. It was super weird. (laughs) I remember we were also supposed to get mail every day, but I never got any. They kept it all until the day I got out. I got mail from my friends. My teachers had sent me mail. Uh, my teachers had sent me one of my one of my favorite teachers, and she was my math tutor. She sent me a teddy bear, which I still think I have somewhere tucked away. It was a super scary time. I didn't know. I I was just coming to understand what mental health looked like in my life, or what mental unhealth looked like more like. I think every time for for someone who has depression or anxiety can be scary because it's so easy to slip into the mindsets that you once had. I was depressed for years before I got a diagnosis. And I was depressed for even more time before I started to take therapy seriously and started to work and fight and battle myself to get better. That's all I've been doing for the past years, battling to get better. It's something that comes and sometimes it goes away. And I've been having a really hard week, a uh, really hard day for sure. I don't know if the significance of the day it being National Suicide Prevention Day has has made this 
kind of more poignant or more prevalent on my mind or in my heart, but I think it might. It's so scary to feel alone. It's quite literally lonely, <laughs> I guess. Which is a dumb way to say it, but when you feel alone, you feel like no one understands you because how could they? I felt that way, and sometimes I still do. Sometimes I feel as though it's just not it's just not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be to feel the way that I feel and that no one ever no one ever could understand me, so why talk about it? So why? <laughs> why talk about it? Like I said about halfway through, I want people to feel like their situation, that their story, that that what they're going through matters. Whether it be a period of super mental, mentally healthy behaviors, where you're feeling good, where you're doing good, that's great. And you're not alone in that. Many people are along that journey. And whether you're not doing great, whether you're struggling a lot, whether this, whether this pandemic took everything out of you, whether you lost a loved one or have loved ones sick or have loved ones that you haven't connected with in a long time because you don't feel comfortable connecting with them, whether it be politically, not wanting to talk to a person, whether it being religiously or like even like covidly motivated. It's a really hard place that we all are walking. So I think there is some un- unity in that. There's fear in the unity, but as long as we can use our fear to push us to something rather than push us away or push us deeper into our own mind and our own heads, I think we'll get somewhere. Folks, I really love making this podcast. And the only way that I can keep making the podcast is to have you guys keep supporting the sponsor, GFG, having you guys tell friends about the podcast and have people share. This podcast was super, super depressing and super sad, um, but I think it's worth it. And I think I'll have to listen back and make sure that I'm not crying too much for the period of time that I was. But I, to each and every person that takes the time to listen to my story, thank you passionately for being a part of this podcast, even if it's just this episode. It means the world to me to get to make this and get to think and get a few people thinking that what I have to say might matter. So thank you for the opportunity to come into your ear waves and your mind. If there's anything you love about this podcast, please, please let me know. If there's anything you hate, well, forget about it. (laughs) Um, And if there's something you want to see that you're not seeing, please let me know. I'd love to try and make something happen for you. As I mentioned at the beginning, this podcast wouldn't also be possible without Matt Peterson, Matt Battaglia, and Matthew Austin Barnes, who work and have created amazing things for me and will hopefully continue to do so. Do So, so shout out to all you for listening. Please know you're not alone. And know that passionately... People will, people will be there for you. All you have to do is reach out. Thank you.